This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Amir Sayyad Abdi, the host of the channel. Today, I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Joshua Spica about his book, Food Justice Now, Deepening the Roots of Social Struggle, which was published in 2018 by University of Minnesota Press. Josh is an associate professor of sociology at the Colorado State University. Josh, thanks for accepting my invitation and welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Amir. It's great to be with you. Uh, to start off, uh, Josh, could you please tell us a bit about your uh, backgrounds, both personal and research-wise? Sure. Um, I've been working at Colorado State University since 2014, and my work focuses on the study of food as a site for social, political, and economic struggle. I'm particularly interested in the ways in which people use food both to solve social problems um, as well as problems within the food system and how they come to be. I focus a lot in my work on questions of political economy and food, race and class and food and social movements and, and the ways in which social movements are organized to um, either use food to solve problems and or uh, look at food movements themselves. Uh, thanks, Josh. And um, there's often a story behind every book. Uh, I was wondering what the story is behind yours. I mean, uh, why food? Why food justice? Sure. So for me, that goes back uh, a few years or so. In college, I went to Santa Clara University, which is in the San Francisco Bay Area, and while a student, I found myself involved in several food labor campaigns. And so I've come at food from this question of the hands that feed us. So for example, um, in the early 2000s, the coalition of Immokalee workers based in Florida was um, staging a boycott, a nationwide boycott of Taco Bell and as part of that work, we're visiting college campuses and we're drumming up support from college students to put pressure on the company to sign what was called the Fair Food Agreement uh, that would pay a penny more per pound for tomatoes picked in the fields of Immokalee, Florida. And, and so I started to learn about the plight of farm workers in the United States and, and was in, involved in some of that solidarity work as a student. Um, and then I also was involved in supporting cafeteria workers at Santa Clara University, 
um, particularly at one stage, they were negotiating a new contract with the university to gain better wages and benefits and were turning to the support of students to pressure the university to do the right thing and take care of the hands that were feeding countless students, staff and, and faculty at the university. And then um, beyond kind of that work doing uh, labor organizing or, or labor solidarity work with food workers, um, after I graduated from college, I started to get really interested in urban agriculture and, and in particular, the kind of growing focus of what we're, I guess, now calling food justice on using local urban food production to create greater access to healthy, affordable and culturally appropriate food. And so I started to meet food justice activists in the San Francisco Bay Area where I was living and in, in particular got involved uh, with an organization called Planting Justice, uh, which is one of the uh, cases and organizations and networks that I focus on in my book, Food Justice Now, and, and started to get more involved um, on that side of things. So those, that background really informed my interest in questions of economic and racial justice as it pertains to food and, and really the ways in which activists center food in their work. And, and I started to realize just how significant the food system is, not just in the sense that we have to eat every day, but just in the way in which it actually structures um, the economy. You know, food workers make up a huge segment of the global working population, whether it's out in the fields or in the kitchens, there are so many people that feed us and help reproduce society as a result. And so I just, my imagination and experience took me to just look more deeply um, at this question of food justice and questions of food and inequality. Hey, um, there is, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, there seems to be a, um, like a historical focus in, in the first chapter of your book. I mean. Uh, you begin the book with historical lessons from the uh, agrarian movement of the late 1800s to uh, sort of trace the many social movements that emerged in the uh, 1960s. Uh, I was wondering what the reason is behind this historical focus. So at the time I was writing the book, there was not as clear a historical sense in the academic literature of the various historical food and social justice movements that have fed into the food justice movement. So in, in effect, I took the cases that the book focuses on and looked more deeply into the movements that fed into the work of, in, in the case of my book, United Food and Commercial Workers, San Diego Food Sustainable Food Project, and Planting Justice. And, and as I started to think also about the history and started to trace some of the lineages you know, for example, looking at the agrarian populist movement, looking at the Black Power movement, and particularly the work of the Black Panther Party and their Free Breakfast for Children program, you know, looking at the farm worker labor movement and other food labor movements. You know, I, I realized that all of these movements were really feeding into this contemporary movement that we call food justice because they were centering questions 
of racial and economic justice in their work. And food was either the vehicle or the site for struggle. And then in addition to that, I think that the stories we tell about the history and practice of food justice matter for whether or not we come up with effective strategies to address the structural drivers of problems in the food system and society more broadly. And so I wanted to, to start to do some of that work, acknowledging, of course, that there are so many more histories to tell. I think, for example, Monica White's recent work in her book, Freedom Farmers, does an excellent job in telling a lot of the African-American history that's fed into the contemporary food justice movement. And so I think that work is, is really critical, both to acknowledge where the food justice movement comes from, but also to understand why we use terms like justice and why things like race and class and gender matter when we talk about um, addressing some of the inequities and problems in the food system. Um, I see. And speaking of, you know, addressing these um, inequities and injustice, um, when, when, when it comes to, you know, uh, discussions of food activism, uh, we often see uh, this idea uh, according to which, uh, you know, there are these people who don't have access to a healthy, affordable and uh, culturally appropriate food. So uh, if we somehow address this lack, if we somehow feed the people who are you know, lacking food, if we build uh, two supermarkets here and three supermarkets there, uh, we have in fact addressed uh, food injustice. And if we keep doing all this, we can eventually even uh, solve uh, food injustice and food insecurity. But um, is that all there is to it? Yeah. That's a really good question. And I, I guess the first thing that I would say in terms of how I view food justice is that food justice is really the struggle for social justice throughout the entire food system. You know, and if we understand the food system to be really a system of systems, then it's a struggle that permeates so many facets of social, political, and economic life. So when talking about food injustice, for me, it has a lot more um, to do with than just a lack of access to food. But I think beyond that, let me just say that I don't want to be overly prescriptive. And one of the points of the book is that there's an ongoing relationship between economic, political, and social conditions, and then how activists use food and see the food system as a site to advance social justice. And at times, this has meant seeing a lack, such as food and coming up with strategies to feed people who have immediate needs. And while this is temporary, it's also necessary. Um, but there's also been efforts that see a lack, like a lack of labor protections and work to pass laws that take care of food workers. And this can have longer term impacts because the approach to filling a lack looks for more structural solutions. So that focus on lack can do different things, I guess. But that said, I think there's a common deficit mindset in the food movement that leads to only looking at people and places in the negative. So, for example, there are many food activist projects in the urban agriculture space that have sought to increase access to local produce to communities without easy access to a grocery store. Right. Or, for example, try to court a grocery store to move into a neighborhood. But I would suggest that instead we bring an asset-minded approach to food activism. 
you know, that first begins with identifying the skills, resources, and desires of neighborhoods and communities. And that in essence acknowledges that food justice requires food sovereignty. And to kind of take this, I guess, a step further, I think we also need to see that the food system is not broken and broken and needing to be fixed, which I think is a really common trope that the food system is broken. And Eric Holt Jimenez writes about this in A Foodie's Guide to Capitalism, you know, that the food system works like it's designed to work, which currently entails generating profits at the expense of poor people, people of color, indigenous people, women, and the environment the world over. So I think we also need to recognize that create to create more just food systems that we have to solve a range of intersecting and underlying problems. So for example, if we begin from an asset-minded approach and policymakers and other community leaders listen to community members, we will find that issues like here in, in the US, for instance, physical infrastructure, gentrification, and transportation might be exacerbating something like low community access to healthy food. And, and one example that I oftentimes draw on is um, th this example of corner store conversions in Los Angeles. And the Los Angeles Food Policy Councils um, several years ago were doing some listening sessions with various community members and realized that corner stores were an asset in their community. They're everywhere. And they're oftentimes viewed as this negative thing, right? That these corner stores are just selling highly processed foods and, and are actually contributing to health problems in low-income communities. But instead of kind of coming at it from this deficit mindset, they saw it as a space where they could actually convert those corner stores into places where there was higher quality food and healthier food. And so I think there's a way in which we can reimagine how to solve quote unquote problems in the food system by looking at what's already there and then using resources and imagination to, um, to I guess, create greater food justice. I totally agree. And I think this is a good place to talk also about uh, the notion of restorative food justice with you, which you uh, talk about. Uh, extensively in the book. Uh, for those listeners who are not uh, familiar with the notion, could you tell us a bit about restorative food justice and also how you uh, contextualize this uh, in your book and through your field work? Sure. So I guess just to maybe start with the definition I use. Um, so I define restorative food justice as a commitment to economic, racial, and restorative justice and permaculture with mutual aid strategies that support formerly incarcerated people and their communities to heal from the trauma of mass incarceration and that advance policies to improve the reentry process. And the way I came to this notion of restorative food justice was in my work with Planting Justice. So Planting Justice is um, a nonprofit in the San Francisco Bay Area that works with formerly incarcerated people. And in that work, what they're doing is providing living wage work in urban agriculture, in um, nursery work, in community organizing and youth education um, that recognizes the, the real challenges of re-entry 
upon incarceration. At first, they were working a lot with formerly incarcerated people coming out of San Quentin State Prison, and they had a partnership, and I guess an ongoing partnership, with an organization called the Insight Garden Program that does a lot of horticultural therapy with incarcerated folks, and then creates this this opportunity post-incarceration to get, you know, fairly good jobs. And then Planting Justice provides a lot of other wraparound services to support that transition. And part of that work is, is restorative justice work. And, and that work really entails historically kind of bringing together people who have um, harmed and been harmed through some act, like say somebody robs somebody else. And the idea of restorative justice is to create a space where two people um, or a community and an individual can uh, work through the harm caused by an individual that doesn't entail going to prison, for example, um, or using sort of the typical criminal legal system to mediate or, or solve um, a harm or conflict. And in the case of planting justice, you know, that restorative work is not only creating jobs for formerly incarcerated people that are engaged with the land and through that fostering healing from that trauma of mass of, of incarceration, um, but also creating mutual support networks of formerly incarcerated people who are working collaboratively and collectively together um, to really disrupt the prison pipeline. In California, the recidivism rate at the time of my work was roughly about 65% of people who were going back to prison within three years of being released. And, and so there was this cycle of reincarceration. And part of the issue for why that's happening is because people don't have many good economic opportunities or forms of social support to um, kind of help disrupt uh, some cycles that formerly incarcerated people may find themselves in, maybe having to go back to certain um, what's considered criminal activity um, in order to survive. Um, and so Planting Justice really creatively found the ways in which food can be a tool for racial and economic justice. And in addition to that, um, really reimagine how food is a powerful tool to advance food justice. I mean, I guess the only other thing that I would add here is that a lot of the folks who Planting Justice works with and who the organization is driven by are people of color, particularly black and, black and brown folks um, and working class folks who are living in communities that have things like low food access. And in addition are also the site for over-incarceration and policing. And, and so there are so many social problems that a community can face. And you know, one of the, the lessons of um, food justice now is to see how if we take a more intersectional or, or a more um, kind of complex look at the lives that people lead, that food all of a sudden opens up so many opportunities um, 
to engage in creative ways and, and to kind of solve problems in new ways. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I see. Uh, and that was a chapter that I uh, enjoyed uh, very much, Josh. Uh, but uh, another chapter chapter that I um, enjoyed almost you know, equally was uh, where you discuss uh, whiteness and privilege in the food movement and how... Uh, despite food activism being about justice and equity, uh, there is nevertheless an existing us versus them kind of narrative in the food movement, with us being, you know, white privileged folks and them being uh, migrant farm workers and uh, food chain workers or, uh, uh, you know, illegal aliens, what, you know, may not refers to as impossible subjects. Uh, could you tell us a bit about that and also how you have demonstrated this in your book and through your field work? Yeah, thanks. It's a great question. And, and, and I think there's a couple of ways that it's important to um, think about food justice. And, and I want to acknowledge that, you know, a lot of the food justice literature really begins in the streets. You know, and, and it begins on the land with indigenous farmers and eaters in black and brown communities that are coming up with solutions to problems that they face in the food system and that the academic literature really emerges um, out of what people have long been engaged with. And, and I think at the same time, you know, there's this long history um, of really since, at least here in the U.S., but I think in many places around the world, since maybe around the 1960s and the increase in uh, attention to environmental problems that we need to address food in the food system if, if we're going to have a sustainable planet um, in every sense of the word, from economic, ecological, and, and social kind of positions. But a lot of that kind of environmental movement and its focus on food really overdetermined the environment and, and overdetermined the market as the most important sites, I guess, for solving food problems. And part of that is because they overlooked the experiences of communities of color, indigenous folks. And you know, you brought up question of immigrants and the experience of immigration. And one of the reasons why I focus on immigration in my book is because that's what activists were focusing on. So in the case of United Food and Commercial Workers, um, Local 770 in Los Angeles, you know, their membership is overwhelmingly made up of people, particularly Latinx folks, um, from Mexico and Central America and their families that are, are working in the meatpacking and food processing sectors, um, as well as the grocery retail sector. And in a place like Los Angeles, 
um, you know, it's a majority minority city and the number one spoken language is Spanish. And so, you know, we're going to talk about solving problems um, in the food system. You know, we have to take immigration seriously and we have to engage with how structural racism really manifests um, through the way in which we kind of police immigrants and the way in which we approach immigration, um, immigration policy, for example. You know, let me specify a little bit more, you know, um, in the context of the U.S. and many other countries, immigrants are also essential to the profitability of agricultural and food production and to getting food onto the plates of many people. And many of these immigrants leave their country of origin, such as Mexico, um, to come to places like the U.S. because of the undermining of their agricultural systems by things like the North American Free Trade Agreement. You know, one book that I think really brilliantly illustrates this is Alicia Galvez's book, Eating NAFTA. Um, and then once in the receiving country, you know, many immigrants enter at the bottom of the occupational ladder with food work being really common. And for the many undocumented immigrants in this scenario, they experience high levels of economic exploitation and a lack of labor protections. And I mean, this has been documented in countless research articles and countless journalist exposés and, and in books. And so if, you know, again, if we wanna kind of solve problems in the food system, first we have to acknowledge like, who's making it possible for us to feed ourselves as a society. Definitely. And then we need to take efforts to support that population. So something like, you know, uh, providing a pathway to citizenship for immigrants becomes a matter of food justice, mm -hmm. you know, and, and how we engage people at the border becomes an issue of food justice and how we structure things like, um, you know, worker programs that bring workers onto farms becomes a question of food justice. And, and there are just so many organizations that have focused on this, you know, United Farm Workers in the US, um, community to community development in Washington state. You know, a lot of groups have been drawing these connections and, and so, um, as part of my work in food justice now, it just seemed really important to, to center that. It is important indeed. Um, and in the last chapter of your book, Josh, you talk about uh, radical food politics. Um, what does you know, radicalized food uh, politics look like? And why do you see the need to radicalize food politics? Um, so I guess I'll begin by just noting that the Latin root of radical is radix, which means of or relating to the root. And the subtitle of my book is Deepening the Roots of Social Struggle. And so the, the book in some sense is an explicit call to identify the historical and structural reasons for why there are food inequities. And then working from that space to transform the food system in a way that leads to food justice. And, you know, my sense is that we're going to continue to come up with the same so-called solutions to the problems in our food system if we don't take more radical steps to transfer resources and power to workers and eaters 
who've long been exploited and excluded in the food system. And, you know, much of the work of radicalizing food politics begins with transforming this, the places where we work and live to advance food justice. So, for, for example, um, universities and other businesses that procure food can change their policies to purchase food that is produced in ways that meet um, standards that we might consider more likely to advance food justice. And, I, you know, I've been... I guess, talking about this for several years, because in my setting, working in a university, you know, I see all kinds of corporate food products that have questionable standards of production, whether it's in the way those um, foods are produced that harm the environment or harm workers. And I think we can be just a lot more creative in transforming the places where we're already embedded and agitating for that change where we're immediately placed. You know, this isn't some pie in the sky theory that we have to wait for, you know, the revolution to occur yes. in order to <laughs> radicalize what we're doing and create immediate tangible change. And so, you know, I, I want people to take that away, that, that there is something that can be done right away. Um, or if you work for a company where you're purchasing a lot of food, you know, think really long and hard about, well, where's this food coming from? Like, is this supporting farmers of color? Is this supporting local farmers? Is it supporting workers who are paid a living wage or have a union and have collective bargaining rights? Um, you know, asking these kinds of questions and then holding our leadership accountable can, can really create immediate tangible change. But I think in addition to that, in the political arena, um, we need more policy visioning and advocacy around things that directly impact questions of um, food working and food eating. So poverty alleviation, wage restructuring. You know, part of the reason why we have quote unquote food insecurity is because people can't afford to feed themselves. And so we have to ask why can't people afford to feed themselves? And we have to look at the structure of the economy and the way in which capitalism extracts wealth, oftentimes on the backs of racialized and gendered workers, and look more concretely at. Um, these kind of intersecting avenues to, to advance food justice. But also we need to look at things like land redistribution. You know, here in the United States, you know, white men own an overwhelming majority of farmland, you know, over 90%. And, you know, if we're going to have a just food system, you know, we need to have more equitable access to and control over land for people of color, for indigenous folks, women. And, and so these are some more radical solutions um, to the current kinds of food inequities that we see. And then the last thing that I would say kind of on the I guess, political arena is that, you know, we should agitate for more democratically socialist and cooperative economic systems. You know, part of um, the, the problems that we face economically more generally, but also in the food system, 
is just that um, a lot of wealth and decision-making power is concentrated into only a few hands. And so we need to kind of reimagine how we structure the food system. And there's been a lot of work in that space, you know, going back a long, long time to cooperatize, whether it's the grocery sector or farming. You know, I think of um, the Mondragon um, Cooperative um, in the Basque region in Spain. You know, there's lots of examples that we can look to um, globally and in the U.S. To, to rethink what we're doing in the food system. Thank you, Josh. Um, and, you know, most look on food uh, nowadays, or, or at least the ones that I have come across, uh, they have a final chapter that deals with the future of food from different angles. And uh, your book is not an exception. Um, so how do you think the future of food justice uh, look like? I mean, you, you just described how it should look like, but um, how do you think it will look like? I'm asking you to pretend uh, to um, kind of predict the future here. <laughs> um, I, I might partially punt on the question. And, and in, in this way, you know, I don't think I could say with certainty, but I have a sense of some of the principles that I think can guide food justice work. And, and these are the importance of collective power, diversity, and solidarity. And I think building collective power strengthens food justice as a social movement. And so when food justice activists think like a movement, they strive to collectivize their struggles in ways that can better tackle large structural problems. And so looking forward, you know, what I'm seeing is that there is a lot of effort to build connections um, across social movements that will have direct impact on advancing food justice. And I think that there's a, a recognition that in the highest political spaces, so here in the US, places like the United States Department of Agriculture, that, that that's an agency where food justice, first of all, needs to even be said. And that requires a lot of political organizing. And I think that work is beginning to take place and it's supported by the academic literature too, that's focusing more on food justice. And so there's, I think, kind of relationship um, that's happening and agitation that's happening to, to push that. Um, I guess the other kind of principle would be advancing diversity in the food movement is really important. And this requires though much more than inviting underrepresented groups into pre-existing white and middle-class spaces. You know, this needs to kind of push against a token form of diversity that requires Instead, increasing inclusivity in decision-making power, um, representative leadership, and an equitable redistribution of resources. And so, for example, strategically speaking, you know, what I'm seeing going on is kind of similar to what I was just mentioning, and, and that is food activists linking up with other social justice struggles, like the climate justice movement. You know, if you look at COP26, you know, it's been going on the past couple of weeks, um, you see lots of food sovereignty and, and food justice activists that are in direct conversation with climate justice activists and, and seeing the significance of, of those overlaps 
Um, or, or you look at, you know, racial justice movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, and, you know, you look at the, the Movement for Black Lives platform, and in that platform, you, you kind of see um, food justice aspects like land redistribution and, and support for more cooperative um, economies and food economies. And so, you know, the, the future in a sense lies in the streets. And, and I say that because it's actually what's happening on the ground. Now, where that goes is really hard to say, but the last principle that I think is really important um, and, and that feeds back into some of what I'm talking about is, is solidarity. And solidarity requires engaging reflexively with local economic, political, and social inequities. And doing that opens the opportunity for developing political strategies that can bridge social differences. You know, there's, there's no one single revolutionary subject, if you will, right? Yes. <laughs> this, is, this, this is not going to, no, I, I, I don't think we're going to get to food justice by like one group <laughs> making it happen on their own. You know, this is really going to require a collective effort. And I think there's a greater recognition and understanding of that now than perhaps there's ever been historically, you know, sort of this Gramscian notion of the historical block, right? That yes. It, that there's a there's a bunch of people across different sectors that are coming together um, to to work towards a, or with kind of common goals, and so I'm I'm hopeful that um, food justice is entering more into that space, and, and I guess a, a more kind of mature understanding of what it's going to take to actually achieve food justice, and that we're sort of um, you know, I'm cautious to say this, but moving a little more away from these token urban agriculture projects of, you know, dropping a garden in a poor community and, and hoping that that's going to solve their food insecurity problems to um, a, a bit more creative and structural kind of analysis of what's going on and, and what's required to, to solve those problems. I'm hopeful too, Josh. Um, and, and there's obviously a lot more in the book, and I uh, encourage listeners to pick up a copy. But before we wrap up the interview, um, I'd like to ask, uh, Josh, whether you're working on something right now, or uh, are you thinking about doing a research on a particular topic in the near future? Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm currently working on prison agriculture in the United States. And, mm -hmm. you know, part of my work with Planting Justice, I was you know, working with a lot of formerly incarcerated people and seeing the ways in which food was being used in this really inspiring way um, to, to disrupt the prison pipeline. But it led me to just ask a lot more kind of critical questions too about, well, what is kind of agricultural and food production look like in prisons more broadly? And, and so my current work, I've been, um, I'm, I'm the director of the Prison Agriculture Lab and the co-director of that lab is, is Carrie Chenault, um, who's an assistant professor of geography at Colorado State University. And we've been working with a team of students over the past two years to um, first identify where prison agriculture is taking place in the U.S. and what kind of agricultural activities are taking place, and then the reason for that. And we're looking a lot at why do we continue to see agriculture so prominently 
in prisons? What's the disciplinary purpose of having agriculture in prisons? And, and what's that experience like uh, for incarcerated people? And so that's some of our current work. And I'm also um, doing some field work in Florida and looking specifically uh, at what's happening in the state here and, and looking at some of the conflicts over the, the use of incarcerated people um, to grow food and some of the campaigns to, to challenge those practices. So that's some of the work that I'm currently doing. And then the, the last thing that I'll plug is I've been working with Ashante Reese on a special issue in food and food ways that should be coming out in the new year oh. on food, food and carceral politics. And, and so we have a, a collection um, of articles, people writing about many different kinds of connections be between food and carcerality. And, and so that should be coming out in the new year. Okay, uh, that's really exciting. I can't wait to uh, read it whenever it comes out. And the other projects also sound uh, like very interesting and very important too. Uh, do you have any further comments, Josh? Anything you want to add? No, this has been a great conversation and I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, reflect on food justice now after a few years after its release. And um, yeah, it's just been great to talk with you. Okay, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and speaking with me today and sharing your uh, insight and your work with our listeners. It was an absolute pleasure talking to you, Josh. Thank you.